You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast this month in association with the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospitals Charity. And this is a special bonus edition of COVID-19. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm Jack Chu, here with one of several emergency editions of the show. To set the scene in case you need me to, this is rather serious. The date is the 21st of March 2020 and we're in the midst of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I'm a healthcare professional, I own a healthcare business, host a healthcare podcast and the director of a healthcare think tank. And in each of these roles, I see unique opportunities to help and it's because my audience here and on social media are incredible. It feels like my duty and therefore goal to get as many of you efficiently contributing to the current and future care efforts as possible. As this episode lays out, there's some vital ways in which MSK therapists can help with the care efforts, but also some terrible ways in which well-meaning clinicians can hinder or negatively disrupt care delivery. I love that everyone in my network seems to be asking themselves, what can I do? So I've done the same whilst wearing all four of my metaphorical hats I've just mentioned. So, number one, as a healthcare professional, I'll be leading by example and ceasing all face-to-face care for the foreseeable future. We must practice social distancing to flatten the pandemic curve and reduce the strain on our health service. This is from my observations of expert analysis as well as hard science itself. Number two, as MD of Choose Health, a MSK clinic in Manchester, England, I realise that we have the expertise and infrastructure through our partners at PhysioFast Online to support virtual consulting We also have national and international reputation as well as a local one, so may be able to help promote quality clinicians to deliver virtual clinics and keep patients away from the cowboys who will simply switch their snake oil massage to snake oil virtual rehab. Keep an eye on man and clinical lead Mark Reed's Twitter feeds for opportunities to join Choose Health as a digital associate and stop everyone having to do their own little thing. As host of the Physio Matters podcast, I realise my responsibility to ask the questions on my audience's lips and find the experts' best place to answer them. This starts with this episode, and we have prioritised at least three emergency podcasts that will be released ASAP. Virtual consulting and workforce planning and leadership are already in the pipeline. I'm also working with other organisations to digitise their work as quickly as possible. And if you've had to cancel a CPD or trade event due to COVID-19, please get in touch and see if we can help. As Director of MSK Reform, I realise my responsibility to help identify and mobilise the MSK rehab workforce so we can be ready for when we're needed. So the final but most important call to action from me today is for you to visit mskreform.org.uk forward slash rehab recruits to declare your interest in helping the UK care efforts. Today's podcast merges two conversations I've had this week with consultant respiratory physiotherapist Rachel Moses about COVID-19 and what MSK therapists should and shouldn't be doing. If you're one of almost 50,000 people who watched the 30-minute chat on Facebook or YouTube, then skip ahead 30 minutes to our second chat, which really adds some meat to the bones on our suggestions, including why you really should be putting your stethoscope back in the loft and start sharpening your functional rehab skills. Huge thanks to the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital Charity, who sponsored this podcast for urgent production and release. The RNOH's patients are in great hands with a leadership and staff base who are craving practical advice to best help in this crisis. When all this settles down, remember their thoughtfulness and generosity at this difficult time and send your complex cases for expert opinions. They really are the best in the business. So that's enough from me. I'll see you at the other side and thank you for listening.
So I'm delighted to be here this evening, a Saturday evening after hours. Um, <laughs> it's a very unusual time of day as well as time of, of our lives, I think, really, in a unique situation managing the coronavirus, COVID-19. And as MSK physio myself and also within the role that I have as a digital educator, it feels a really strange thing to feel quite powerless, but also feeling also responsible to try and accentuate good messages and sometimes even counter bad ones. Now, one of the things that I've been doing recently is sort of speaking my opinion as to what I've understood as being mechanisms and some of the epidemiology and just trying to feed that forward. This is not what this is. So you might have seen that on Twitter. That's not what we're doing here. Here. instead of talking strategy or even musing over policy this is something that instead I wanted to get a good friend of mine Rachel Moses who is a consultant respiratory physiotherapist who has been doing a lot of the thinking on this in the practical pragmatic side of things and understanding what's going on on the front line and trying to make sure that we can mobilize a sensible workforce efficiently and safely as can be of course and so that's going to be what we visit in this conversation and talk through some of those things. So the places where we don't go, we are preparing some other information and education alongside other providers just to make sure that we maximize the impact on the airwaves at the moment. Uh, but generally speaking, that's what we are and aren't going to be talking about. But I want to thank Rachel before we even get going for coming on the show at this time of night and uh, time of, of a very busy period for her, as you can imagine. And so Rachel, in case uh, I've missed anything else in your intro, could you let the listeners know a little bit about your roles and, and, and what we've been uh, talking about? Thanks, Jack. So, yes, um, I am a consultant respiratory physiotherapist and my speciality is in long-term ventilation. And so that's anything from a patient being stuck in intensive care on a ventilator that we can't wean um, and either liberating them from the ventilator or, or if we can't, setting them up on a ventilator to go home with. Um, and that includes like airway clearance or some of the cough assist machines you might have heard of, tracheostomy care. So everything around that very, very acute stage of respiratory medicine all the way through to home and community care and then, of course, end of life care planning. Um, and I mainly look after adults. I do look after some children, more transitional age, kind of teenagers. I definitely don't do babies. Um, they're, they're a unique speciality, but that, that's kind of like my cohort. Yeah. And obviously, this is why I take a bit of an interest in what's going on at the moment. And um, and yeah, and I'm speaking on behalf of myself, really. My trust are incredibly supportive of some of the work that I'm doing at the moment, which is some standalone document work. Um, and my other role is on CSP Council, which I'm obviously not speaking on behalf of, of the CSP either. So. Of course, no problem. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you very much for that. So one of the questions I really wanted to dive into was what does care of COVID-19 patients look like? So that's a really, really great question. So if we think about what the coronavirus is, um, it's, it's actually a group of viruses that exist around the world, um, but we have particular strains and COVID-19 is a unique and new strain. So we don't really know how to manage it. We have no vaccine, we have no immunity, um, and we're really kind of trying to understand how this virus presents. Now, it's changing all the time, I will say that. And the most recent kind of evidence that we have, the most up-to-date evidence is it's very much presenting like the SARS virus, which people may, may remember from the early, you know, um, in two, 2002, 2003, 2004. And that was kind of the last pandemic that we had. So these patients um, will tend to um, present with obviously a temperature of fever, and that's about 37.8. So that would be the numbers that the government are providing us with. And a cough. And that's a cough that's continuous and new in presentation. So not a chronic cough. And they're the two things that people are looking out for now. We tend to have three stages. Um, and that's what certainly our colleagues in other countries are saying. So you have the initial flu-like stage where you might have a, you know, the, the respiratory virus stage where you have a cough or cold. Um, and you generally feel unwell. 
that moves on to a pneumonia stage for some people. So pneumonia is what we classify as a significant or severe chest infection. Um, and then you have the late stage. And these are the minority of people, but these are the people that are needing to come into hospital. And then they develop an acute respiratory distress syndrome where their oxygen levels are very low. And these are the types of people that need help with their ventilation. So they will be intubated um, or we support them with ventilation non-invasively. But that, that's kind of a grey area. We, we, we don't tend to do that. We tend to just intubate them and, and put, pop them on a ventilator in intensive care. That would be the primary management for these patients when they present critically unwell. So one of the things that as, a, as MSK physios, sometimes it's a, a while back that we touched on some of those things you're describing. And so sometimes we sort of have this catch-all respiratory physio sort of toolkit that we recall, be that manual techniques, ACVT, various different devices that we might or might not have used. Um, obviously, on an individual patient level, it may well be that any one of those things might be relevant or not. But in this instance, it is particularly trying to intubate the right patients that are critically unwell and that really the, the interval stuff I've described there isn't as important as the considering the policies that we're talking about. Absolutely Jack and I think that that's the big take-home message these patients have ventilatory failure um, it's a virus so it doesn't respond to a lot of, of therapy um, and if the, the, from, from what our colleagues are telling us in other countries who are dealing with this pandemic on mass scale, that is the, that is the, the primary treatment is to, is to ventilate. Now, obviously, that becomes a capacity issue, and that's what some of our colleagues are seeing, particularly in Italy, that you know, there's a limited amount of intensive care beds, and not everyone normally will get offered intensive care treatment so there would be you know it, it, it's not a given for everyone for example if someone's particularly frail we don't tend to go off age so much we go off frailty and a lot of comorbidities existing preconditions and some people might already have a ceiling of treatment in place for example they may not be for intubation ventilation and intensive care so if these people are presenting with COVID-19 um, then that does become a challenge for healthcare as well because intubation can't be the default and that's maybe where respiratory physio and other physiotherapists potentially in the future might come in. Okay now it makes sense now one of the things they've been saying about it being a particularly dry cough and therefore not productive um, that maybe is when, it, when I think about what the care delivery is when people are thinking about whether their skill set is or isn't up to scratch to help one of the things I've been hearing from people is oh I haven't done vibs and percussions and suction for years and I'm like well I think at the very least, you're in a situation where your reasoning is going to be more important than those particular skills. Now, am I wrong to be reassuring them in that direction? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, from what our colleagues tell us again, um, it's a non-productive um, condition. And we're not seeing a lot of um, intensive respiratory physiotherapy needed in the intensive care units. Um, of course, there will always be people that present with COVID-19 with underlying conditions, um, but that we're just not seeing that at the moment. Um, so, yeah, that would be that okay. would be an accurate reflection, Jack. Good. Well, I'm glad I've, I'm glad I've not given any, any further information then. But, um, yeah, I can understand those instincts because sometimes we sort of lump those things in. It's just chest stuff to us sometimes. And, and so we need to try and cut through that and be a bit more specific. So that's helpful. What are the risks to physios? So if, if we're talking about acute physiotherapy, so physiotherapy that we're working on, working on intensive care, on the wards, in the emergency departments that are frontline, you know, respiratory or medical staff, medically 
doing respiratory physios. Um, there's obviously going to be a risk of exposure to the to the physiotherapist. There's going to be a risk of exposure and transmission. Um, so us kind of passing it on to the patients if we may be unaware that we have the virus. Um, so really what we need to be mindful of is minimising the risk and really adhering to you know personal protection equipment. Um, very, very clear guidelines from the government, from Public Health England about what we should be doing. And they're absolutely being adopted at local level within trusts. So of course the risk is that we're going to contract. Of course the risk is then we might transmit, might unknowingly transmit. Um, and that you know that that is the worry with healthcare workers, and certainly in Italy, that's what they found. A number of healthcare workers, unfortunately, have contracted um, COVID nineteen. So we need in in the UK, we're really mindful of that. Sure. Yeah. Because so the, the the risks to physios are the risks to the population, but just heightened because of exposure. Exactly. Now, if you think about your MSK physio in an MSK department or in a private practice, maybe, then those risks do exist. So certainly the advice I would be given is screening your patients before they come in. I think we're absolutely in a cross-community and across outpatient settings. Um, you would screen all of the patients that would kind of come into your clinic. Now, that could be phoning them up beforehand and saying, have you got any of these symptoms? That could be as they're coming into your clinic. Have you had a temperature? Obviously, you've got all the travel screening questions that hopefully everyone's aware of now. Um, yeah. Have you got a temperature? Have you got a cough? Do you feel unwell? Have you had contact with a person who has now got being diagnosed or is in self-isolation with COVID-19? Because if they are, if they have any of those things, you don't want that person coming to your clinic. Yeah. And then when you do treat someone in your clinic, you have to be extra vigilant about hand hygiene. Um, you know, alcohol, gel, if you can get it, if you have it in your practice, wiping surfaces down. Um, you know, I can't stress how important that is to minimise the risk and to prevent transmission. Absolutely, no, that's really valuable and, uh, and and hopefully something that people are starting to really crank the gears on. Uh, but sometimes there's a complacency in outpatient and sports environments compared to acute. Uh, but definitely we all need to be starting to do that generally. And I think I've, I've, over the weekend we're witnessing people feeling like that in public spaces anyway. We're seeing um, various different uh, places taking those precautions. So I'm glad it's moving in that direction. So thank you for that. Um, with regards to mitigating them, is there anything else that we need to add on that, um, particularly for, for physios? And the ways in which they can they can further protect themselves. So, if we're talking about um, in an acute environment, um, again, we are following Public Health England advice um, again, which is very clear in terms of they just hot off the press last night, such this morning, have new infection control guidelines, which is a collaborative approach to what we should be doing. Um, in terms of respiratory physiotherapy or acute physiotherapy, this is exactly the reason I put my little document together in terms of it could collaborate all the information, all the guidelines, because it's a bit, it's, it's in lots of different places at the minute on the internet and on the government websites. So it brings it all together in terms of preparing ourselves, so keeping ourselves clean and, 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 and virus free using the right personal protective equipment and that includes things that we do as physios that maybe aren't listed on the government pages so any aerosol generating procedures that we do basically get any any technique we do to get the patients a little bit out of breath to get them coughing to get them up to get them mobilizing because this isn't just in the very acute phase it's when we're starting to rehabilitate the patients and you know maybe on a ward or a cohort environment so all of these little things to try and keep ourselves safe our patients safe and then of course we go home so um, there's a big thing around uniforms and about wearing, you know, keeping uniforms at home at, at, at the hospitals or wearing scrubs if you're in a corporate infected area or if you're going to see um, positive patients. 
And then if not, if you do wear a uniform, you know, bag your uniform up at the end of the day, take it home, put it through a hot wash. How many times do you see, not just physios, other, other healthcare professionals leaving the hospital in their uniforms? So we're really trying to, get, to stamp down on this as well. So, so looking after ourselves, the public, our family. Wash your hands all the time, especially when you leave work and get in from get in from work. So first thing, everything everyone should be doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. And um, I think one of the things that I certainly, until I was preparing for this conversation, I hadn't really given thought to the fact that down the line in weeks and months to come, we're going to be needing to rehabilitate these patients and, and, and that's going to present itself with new challenges. And, and that's but it's super important because that will hopefully clear the, clear the way with regards to beds and facilities. And so it's really important work that's going to be done, but that will aerosolize. We will be, we will be um, getting people working and exercising in various different parts of the hospitals perhaps. And so we need to uh, have vigilance across the board as well as in the community which I'm sure we'll be coming to. So, yeah, it's a, really, it's a really good point that I definitely didn't think of. You know, you think of them really acutely and well, but fundamentally they need downstream to be, to be phased back out, especially to make way for the next batch, unfortunately, because of the pandemic nature of this, of course. So one of the things that um, I wanted to ask, that I've, a term that I've been hearing um, that I didn't know really understand until I was Googling and, and obviously asking around is what is fit testing? So, um, any anyone who requires the use of respiratory protective equipment, um, and that is normally in the face of a respirator mask, um, requires us to know that that mask is working and it's ineffective. So, um, the, the fit testing that we do in the NHS is basically like a hood um, that comes over your head and it's sealed um, at the bottom around your neck and it has a um, small hole around about where your mouth is. Um, and it evolves, it's got two sprays, it's got it's got a bitter and a sweet spray. It involves doing a sensitivity test first to say that you can taste the um, the bitter spray. And you then, not on the same day, you normally do your test first and then um, do your actual fit test later. Then it involves fitting a respirator mask called, we use the FFP3s, which are the standard um, recommended masks. Um, you pop it on, you fit it well, so there's, there's diagrams about how you fit your mask respirator well. And then you put your head inside this hood and then you basically get to spray inside the hood. Um, and you have to do different types of exercises in the hood, like moving your head from side to side, down to down, forward and um, walking, just to make sure that that mask has a really good seal. And then if you pass the fit test, you know that that mask is going to be absolutely spot on for you if you have to go and treat an infected patient. So um, interestingly, they, just last night, um, the guidelines changed. So all staff had to wear full masks, like respirator masks when they see COVID-19 positive patients. But now those masks are only to be used if you're doing an aerosol generating procedure or you're working in a critical care environment. Um, so the surgical masks, the other masks that you can get, um, they're just like the theatre style masks. They are, um, they are now um, absolutely safe to use with these patients as long as they're not, you're not doing aerosol generating procedures. And an aerosol generating procedure is just exactly what it sounds like. Some, uh, something that you're going to do that makes the patients cough and produce respiratory droplets because that's how this virus is transmitted. It might be more contentious than I'm meaning to be, but do you think that, that, that is that because of supply and demand or is that because there is good evidence to suggest of safety? So this again has come from some of the epidemiology of the, what we know about the virus now and in my very um, limited understanding of all of this is again relating it to the SARS pandemic and um, they're seeing lots of similarities and there was a um, paper I think it was the um, Hong Kong team that looked at the effectiveness of they did a meta-analysis after the SARS virus and they looked at the effectiveness of surgical masks and the FFP3s and there was an 80% 
um, you know, similarity between the, the two masks in terms of being completely effective in terms of the non-transmission of the virus through either mask. Um, so, I mean, we, we do, we have heard of some trusts that are having supply problems with FFP3s, but as far as I'm aware, the, the, those supply problems are, are fine now. We don't have problems in our hospitals, and um, so I don't think it's because of, uh, you know, lack of masks. I think it's a genuine, scientifically proven, yeah. safe Good. Well, that, that's 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 reassuring. As I say, I wasn't meaning to sound too cynical, but sometimes you do wonder if they're just laxing in those for the reasons of, of supply. So that's promising. Pleased to hear that. Um, one of the things that uh, we, we're talking broadly on, but obviously our audience is um, typically MSK therapists of various different flavours and people interested in MSK. And so what could MSK therapists do now, do you feel? That's a really great question. So this is my personal opinion. So if the, probably some of my colleagues might not agree with me, but in terms of in terms of physiotherapists being on long corridors and doing you know specialist respiratory techniques, I absolutely do not agree with. It's more hassle than it's worth. You know, I can't do your job. And why should I expect you to come do my job? And in my experience, when MSK physios have done things like that, it's led to huge problems, not just with anxieties, but about competencies and actually safety. So that, that's the bottom line for me. But do MSK physios have a role in this pandemic? Do they have a role in, in, in you know, frontline physiotherapy? Absolutely. Now, in terms of what MSK physios can do will absolutely depend on the arena they're working in, like you said. So if you're a private practice MSK practitioner that maybe has never even done hospital work before, because um, we obviously would, we're seeing that more and more now, don't we? Back in probably your day and my day, everybody came through their NHS, everyone done their rotations, yeah. um, you know, so they had some experience. It's very unlikely that you're going to be drafted in and asked to come and help in the acute environment. Your skills might lie more in the community sector. For those MSK colleagues, and I know lots of my colleagues who have excellent skills in rehab, and um, you know, in, in in even just you know that frailty stage when we're, we need to get people up and get people moving again, and that you know still being able to care for people, have that conversation with them, you know, um, in terms of maybe functional activities. Yeah. Um, I absolutely see a role in MSK physios now. In terms of what can you do as, if I take it back a step, what can you do as a profession? Um, so if you're an MSK physio or an MSK team lead in the department, um, my big ask is you're just mindful to what's going on. You're mindful to what your hospital's going through. You're mindful of what your preparedness plans are. You're mindful of what the government advice is. You're mindful of the um, information that's provided for employers and for, um, you know, for people who are working in acute healthcare services. You absolutely know how to minimise the risks that everything was said before about hand hygiene, about being, you know, absolutely anal about your cleaning of your plinths, of your areas, and um, actually allocating someone to that, give your staff time to do that. It is not going to be long at all if your department hasn't already shut down outpatient activity. And um, most trusts now are at the point where we are going to shut all outpatient activity. So, um, and the main reason for that is to reduce the footfall through the hospital. So reduce the amount of people coming into hospital, um, you know, not just not just about virus transmission, but just about sheer numbers. Um, you know, some, some trusts have already done that. Um, it might be essential kind of outpatient activity only when we think about lung cancer patients, etc. Yeah, sure. um, so if that's the case, you really need to think about what your unique contribution is to your department. 
So again, it will depend if you're a major trauma teaching hospital or if you're a district general or if you're a community provider. But what is your unique contribution to your um, preparedness plans, to the pandemic plans that your trust have? And the other thing is, can you support your inpatient teams? How can you do that? Do you have rotational band sixes? Do you have rotational band fives? Do you have band seven um, pain specialists? You know, your super specialist MSK physios might actually have the least they can contribute in terms of clinical, but they might have the most in terms of strategy, operational, supporting that other 8A respiratory physio, supporting the departmental manager. You know, this is a stressful time for people and they have to make decisions um, that affect huge numbers of staff that are worried about their families, they might have small children, some of our staff might be pregnant, some might be immunocompromised, some might have elderly parents, and of course some staff might contract the virus as well. So in terms of if your department makes a decision about MSK staff being mobilised to help frontline, um, it has to be safe, so MSK officers are well within their rights to say, okay, here we are, we're willing to help, um, what's our contribution going to be? And if it's asking them to do something that's slightly outside of the skill set or something they haven't done for a long time, ask what the training is. So we'll be putting training on in our hospital. We're already doing it specific training for respiratory physios and for medical physios, but actually understanding what we're going to be asking um, non-acute respiratory medical physios to do. Yeah, well, I mean, we're 20, 22, 23 minutes in, and I don't think I've been a prick with a question yet, but I'm afraid I might change that, I'm afraid, because one of the things I want to ask you now from just what you've said there that, that, that I think is probably awkward of me to ask, but do you anticipate that done poorly, MSK contributions could be a hindrance rather than a help? You know, if it, it might be coming from a good place, but fundamentally not coordinated well or not been th well, if you're not thoughtful or there's not good expectation management over your skill set, actually we, we could contribute to this problem. Um, so if you have an MSK physio who has never been on a ward for 10 years, um, you know, and is thrown in there to treat acutely unwell patients um, or patients who are in a very acute phase of their recovery, absolutely, it's not, that's not good. And nobody should ever really think about going down that line. And if, they, and if you are, this is my personal opinion, if you are in that situation, you need to challenge back, but challenge back responsibly. You know, don't be a shouty about it. Don't be, these, these people who are making decisions are doing it from a good place. They might yeah. be stressed. They might not be. You know, they might not have a level of experience. They might have no one that's got their backs. So we're seeing HPs in trusts, in certain trusts, not being at the table having these discussions. When is HPs? When we're involved and when we're at the table and when we're invited, we will be part of the pandemic planning. When we're not, it's a knee-jerk reaction. So, oh, shouldn't the MSK department send them to the respiratory ward, send them to the straw ward? That is right. not And it's part of our responsibility, and this is why this is great that you're doing this, Jack, because it can help prepare people. So if, you, if you're if you an MSK um, manager or, you know, you're a senior clinician, um, find out what your contribution is going to be. Even go to your the people that are making these decisions and say, look, this is what we've got. We've got the sixes that can do this. We've got the sevens that can do that. We'll do the fives that can do that. If you've got techs in your department, what can they do? Um, so take some responsibility for this. And if you don't like what you're hearing, rather than have the knee-jerk reaction or start getting shouty, ask, actually sit down as an MSK professional and do. I totally agree with that, and, and certainly, yeah, that's exactly where calm needs to prevail, and we need to be mature and very charitable 
to what what might feel like a poor decision that's coming back to you needs to be uh, sometimes you know, played back, discussed. It certainly needs to. We need to make sure that uh, we're all giving each other the space to, to to make these decisions and make mistakes within these decisions, and, and trying to make sure that we put the safeguards in in real time. One of the things that I've been hit, thinking about more recently is that there's the obvious, well, more obvious pressures on on facilities, resources, staff beds, etc., with regards to the critically unwell, but it's also an incredible stress test on the strategy and human resourcing side of this and, and, and skill uh, skill placement, as you've described it. And I think that's that's the bit where we, we need, we need uh, leaders to step up. We need distributed and, and appropriately, um, um, what's, the, what's the word? Um, delegation, appropriate delegation across the board where people aren't being uh, misplaced, mistreated and then mismanaged because as you've described there are mechanisms in which that can only add fuel to the fire so definitely something that people can bear in mind and that is independent of their, their professional stripes really so that's really valuable to, to go through um, you, one of the things that just, just to bring us to a bit of a close on that I think really is to say do you anticipate there being really specific be the local or national policies that kind of will offer obvious clarity as to rights responsibilities in these circumstances or will there always need to be an overlay of individual professional responsibility where do you see that going in the coming weeks and months so do you mean just just for the physiotherapy profession yeah so let's say yes yeah i don't mean social responsibility no no i do mean like physiotherapy profession across the board do you anticipate that like it will be clear as to what you are meant to do and by that i also want to say in terms of when you contract this or you have a positive test or whatever, or, you know, when we get into the, into the deep of it, if it goes the way that things are in Italy, will there be that you are expected to report to work until you're symptomatic or, you know, or do you think it will be that you end up with this overarching individual overlay where you have to make individual professional decisions without there being a policy-informed responsibility? I, I mean, that's a such, again, a great question. Uh, this, the, the bottom line is if you're infected, you stay away. And um, you're absolutely right. There's stuff in the media, and even um, there's you know there's, there's there's medical colleagues on social media who are saying that you know if the ball is being put in the individual's court, if they're a healthcare worker about coming in when when they have the virus. I think the bottom line for the NHS is that if you're a member of staff who has who because obviously we're not testing everyone. Um, um, so if you have COVID-19, you stay at home, you self-isolate seven days, and then only come back if you're symptom-free. Um, I can't ever imagine us not doing that. Um, in terms of um, in terms of redeployment, are the MSK physiotherapy community in the NHS going to get redeployed? I, I mean, I can I can 100% say I honestly think they will, um, but it's within the right arena. Um, and obviously we need to really look after our MSK physios. So in the same breath as, you know, I'm saying, are you that MSK manager? Are you the MSK team lead that doesn't really know what your inpatient staff do? You never really sit with your respiratory lead. You've got no, you haven't got a scooby-doo about what goes on. Actually make the time say, do you want to sit down? Have you had a cup of tea today? Have you had your lunch today? Do you want to sit down? How can I help? In the same vice versa, that means your respiratory or acute teams are going to look after your MSK staff and say, look, make sure, you know, you've had your fit test. This is what you want. This is how you put your personal protective equipment on. Let's plan before we even get to that stage where we're potentially putting our friends at risk. Yeah, could we could we find a way for this to finally bridge the gap between the inpatient outpatient tribalism of old? You know, maybe this will bring us all together for some big kumbaya sing songs in the uh, months and years to come. Because of course it's a crisis point, and it needs to bring us together as a community to do our best for patients and to mitigate as best we can this pandemic. So thank you so much for your time. 
Um, I know I've got you on the hook for a future episode of, uh, of my new podcast for us to talk about all things Rachel Moses and the various different hats that you wear. So we've got more from Rachel to come, I can promise you that. Probably when the dust has settled from all of this, uh, that might be a while yet, but I do want to make sure I've still got you on the hook for something like that. As well as thank you so much, and we will distribute the documents that you're preparing and sharing and the interter interpretations and translation material that you're doing. I know you're going to be doing some work with our friends over at Physiopedia as well in the coming days, so please everyone share that liberally. It's really important important we get good information out there and you are a font of that so thank you so much for all that you're doing all of the time but especially at the moment thanks jack nice one take care and good luck thanks <laughs> so that was the first chat i had with rachel this week recorded on the 14th of march and a lot happened in the days after that, including 50,000 downloads, as described, people find it very helpful. So add some meat to the bones of the conversation and detail some policy, including the call to action at the end. So we then recorded a follow-up on the 18th of March 2020, and this is how that went. I'll see you at the other side. I'm delighted once again to be here with Rachel Moses. Uh, we didn't expect uh, that last Saturday, well, just a few days ago, we ended up doing a show-stopping 28-minute podcast that broke the internet. Only days later, 40,000 downloads later, we are inundated with requests for more Rachel Moses, and rightly so. And so here we are. We're going to add some meat to the bones of our conversation that we had. If you haven't listened to that yet, then please do. There will be a bit of overlap to set the scene. But fundamentally, we're going to be adding some detail to that conversation. So please check the feeds um, and check social media for that conversation about COVID-19 and what physios shouldn't and shouldn't be doing about it. We have, as things have escalated in national policy, we've taken further precautions. Me and Rachel have, have, are over Skype and we have washed our hands thoroughly. I am bare below the elbow, including not having any trousers on. And so I won't zoom out on the video. It is important that we reiterate some of the points on the last podcast. But above all else, the thing that seems to have really struck a chord is the pragmatic application of what... MSK, orthopedic, and other what I'm calling less medical physiotherapists and other MSK and associated therapists should and maybe could do in this crisis that we find ourselves in. Rachel is appropriately candid about the upper limits of what might be competence or versatility of skill set and is very sensible on those matters when others are sort of inferring that everyone can be everything. And, and I love that about her. And so I'm glad you guys all did too. So firstly, Rachel, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Jack. So we're going, to get, we're going to get stuck in because we definitely want to talk a little bit about not necessarily policy developments in recent days, but certainly it's well worth us just clarifying some of the things that we're finding over COVID-19. And then we're going to sort of talk a little bit about just generally, it's going to be a lot about respiratory upskilling and where we should and shouldn't do it, which is not going to be specific to COVID-19 compared to our last podcast. So what do we know about the disease and how is that relevant to the, the conversation we're going to have about what we should and shouldn't be doing? So as we touched on in the first podcast, um, we talked a little bit about how this virus is manifesting and what it's doing. So it attacks, it's a virus that attacks the airway cells um, and in varying forms. So we mentioned about 80, 81% of people will have very mild and no symptoms. So some people won't even know really they've contracted the virus at all. Some people will just feel a bit fluey. Some people will feel really, really rubbish, but will be managed at home. 
And it's for them smaller populations of people that come in through the front door to the emergency department, normally after a week of having the virus, that they start to feel really unwell. And it's these um, people that present themselves that normally need frontline oxygen therapy. So these patients come in and have got really low oxygen levels. And then, as I mentioned in the first podcast, is this even smaller population of people, say 5% of people, who become so unwell, they need intensive care in the need intensive care because they need intubated and ventilated and mechanically ventilated. So really, there's nothing in between that. There's In terms of the physiotherapy for front door respiratory physio, and we are world leaders in E&E and uh, medical assessment units at the front door and respiratory physio in, in the UK. And I'm telling you, there's really not a role for us in that scenario. That surprised a lot of people and also should reassure quite a lot of people, which is which is great. And with 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 regards to to that how how much have you heard from people asking after respiratory competence upskilling and what are the myths and misconceptions do you feel that we can add some detail to on this podcast so again there's big variance in what we're doing physio isn't the msk respiratory neuro across hospitals trusts um, and parts of the country so if you have an A&E department that has a physio in there, a respiratory physio in their front line and they're setting up ventilators and high flow oxygen and using adjuncts in the A&E department, I think it would be safe to say there might be a role for physios within that department because they're doing that everyday role that they would do. And that's certainly true for some of the advanced practitioner roles that are in AD. Um, for some of the myths that we're, we're hearing about is upskilling large numbers of physios to work at the front door um, to look after these patients and set up machines or do chest physiotherapy on them in A&E. That's just not going to happen. And one of the reasons why is for infection control, for minimising the amount of contact that people come into with healthcare professionals. We don't want people just to be mobilised to these areas, um, which are going to be high contact areas. We want to keep... Um, you know, um, healthcare professionals at a minimum. So we'll want people to see patients at the front door who really know what they're doing across that whole patient pathway. Then obviously you have the three stages that I said that may come next. So straightforward, this person is really unwell. When people come into any with this disease, they're unwell, especially if they've got comorbidities. So they're going to be the ones going straight to intensive care to be intubated um, and ventilated or be managed on non-invasive devices. So again, these the respiratory physios that are going to be looking after these people who have years of experience, um, either working on call um, or being, you know, that's their main specialities, that they're going to be the ones having contact with these patients, not an MSK physio that's done an online course for four hours and had, you know, a couple of hours of, of training on the bird or whatever. People um, think too much of me and you don't need to think that we could uh, even do half of what is being asked of us. <laughs> like, why don't you do a podcast on? And then the, 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 the insert that, that, that in, into that space is usually something that's essentially akin to an ANP master's module that they want to do mm-hmm. on a, an hour's podcast. So that's mm-hmm. hilarious. So instead, what, what I think we need to try and, cement there is that what this disease is going to do is it's going to overwhelm to some extent hopefully not completely but but really take up a lot of resources and a lot of specialist human resources in respiratory not just physio but respiratory care so then yeah 
a lot of the other stuff that we already know is stretching the service anyway prior to the pandemic ends up being something that we need to try and work out who is best placed to sort that stuff out rather than thinking about what utility people have in the wider healthcare environment to solve the disease. Instead, we need to start thinking what what is the competence that can, can uh, work on some of the, shall we say, displaced I don't think that's the right word, but I think people will get what I mean. The other other needs that the service, uh, the health service has, and I think that 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 is really important. That we, we're almost starting that podcast off with that. So this podcast ends up not being about COVID nineteen, does it? it? It becomes about what the sensible things are in an, in an outer scope and where people can best place their skill set. Because the COVID nineteen question ends up being not one for MSK and orthopedic physios, unless they happen to be an incredibly polymathic person that can suddenly flex into their uh, skill set that, that's really versatile. But I just, I've never met that person. So instead, let's think sensibly about what should and shouldn't be in scope. So I want to ask you that directly then. What things, can we give some examples then of perhaps what should be in and out of scope? Let's, be, let's do the out of scope stuff first. What should MSK physios stay away from? Um, basically, um, so I love my MSK physios, right? Just get that out there now. Um, so I, I lead a service. I lead, I'm a major trauma teaching hospital, multi-speciality, specialist commissioned respiratory services. I do not want any MSK physios in my emergency department. I do not want them in my intensive care unit. And I probably don't want them on my specialist respiratory wards either. What I want in my emergency department, in my intensive care unit, on my specialist respiratory wards, are competent, skilled staff who have had additional training to meet the pandemic crisis needs. That's going to be, be upskilling them and things they might not normally do, non-invasive ventilation, um, certain techniques that we might use um, you know, um, to help in that recovery phase. That's what I'm concentrating on now. The second wave of that is all of the other stuff these physios done, because they won't all be in respiratory, they might be in neurosurgery, they might be in paediatrics, they might be in neurology. Um, we're gonna, we're, I'm going to suck all of that resource out of those, out of those teams, and I'm going to need that replaced, because if we don't, we're not going to have flow through the hospital. So I don't want any MSK physio in my trust anywhere near. And uh, I bet your bottom dollar, my lot are probably quite relieved about that. <laughs> and I think a lot of our <laughs> listeners will be, but there's almost a sort of, I get it, it's an obligation to sort of try and think in that direction, to sort of look back into old notes and old old habits and think, what could we do? So in that sense, let's make sure we're really clear on this then. We are not going to be in a situation where we have the luxury of competency assessments and the personnel that would normally do that, even if that was a sensible thing to do, even in peacetime, let's say. So should people therefore, and this is where me and you have been fielding questions like this all all this week, isn't it? Should people stretch their skill set, even if they're rusty, or should they err on the side of caution? I think I know the answer to that, but let's just make sure we're really clear on it. In, in terms of should MSK physios be spending time looking through respiratory textbooks, writing down your blood gases in your normal saturations, absolutely not. I think what would be beneficial if there are no indicators, so if they're going to see a patient, then know what, like, what the signs are. So if they're working a bit hard, if they look a bit uncomfortable, if their respiratory rate's a bit high, you know, 
But that's just common sense, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? Have you guys still got common sense? You do. Are you so so specialist you can't, you know, spot someone that's maybe a little bit out of puff? (laughs) I think. So would I, if if people want to, and I think there's two groups of people here. There's the panic people, the people that think, oh, my God, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get this call and I'm going to be sent to an intensive care unit. I I can't speak for the whole of the NHS. You know, I'm, I'm just me. But... I pretty much I'm happy to say on camera that any leader that does that wants to deploy staff into that situation is just foolish um would do I think you've got the other people the MSK people who want to who think this is a respiratory pandemic I want to learn a little bit I want to know go reference points to when I was a student or qualified and we'll have huge we'll have people that have been qualified five years who might think oh I remember a bit of that 10 years 15, 20 years and above who probably, you know, can't really remember much. But I bet you there's a lot of skills that you have in MSK that you probably don't realise in respiratory. I bet you there's loads of things you can do with shortness of breath, um, positions of comfort, positions of ease, um, you know, relaxation, kind of normal movement patterns that you already know. And it's maybe until you see a patient in front of you, because that's the biggest thing for me, you guys being on a ward with a patient who can't, you know, catch their breath, maybe in their pyjamas, like how many of you have been in that situation for maybe many years? Mm, so, you know, my advice would be to maybe think about that side of it rather than, you know, l- interpreting a chest x-ray. Like, can you teach us how to interpret x-ray? It took me 10 years to learn that. Oh, I know. <laughs> and this is what's funny is that people aren't meaning it. But there is some disrespect that comes for the ride when people are asking questions like that. And I think I beg my MSK orthopedic and surrounding, you know, sector to consider the flip side of that and consider how ridiculous it would be for us to be asked that question. What could me, a 15 years of respiratory physio, do to suddenly upskill a you know, full full body MSK assessments for Joe Bloggs in the waiting room uh, with persistent pain. That's a ridiculous question. We'd know that, yet there's people saying, could you provide a two, two 15-minute videos that might answer that question? So we're reframing it, and we're hopefully being reassuring to say that that is silly. Let's, let's, explain, let's understand why that's silly. Let's also understand why people are thinking that way, and it's out of compassion. But... Even though it's sometimes a bit of a cliche and some people are joking, some people aren't joking, put your stethoscopes away. That's, that's not smart unless you know how to use them. And are there, I suppose instead of me reeling through them, are there things like that that, that are examples of, of, of where we can be really crystal clear? Like, for example, that as, 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 as one thing um, and other um, specific respiratory uh, skills that that uh, we should they shouldn't be trying to flex into. Are there other examples of that that can be clear that they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I mean, these people are sick people that are coming into the hospital. They are sick. They are unwell. If they've been on intensive care, you know, they have they've needed full on organ support. Are we seriously, as a profession, thinking about mobilising a workforce? to those patients who have been critically unwell in those stages. So absolutely, like I said, all I can do is speak for me and my team and what we're doing. Uh, I've absolutely had the same conversations that you've had about saying, oh, we're going to upskill 
these staff we're going to teach get do some respiratory training with them to get them on the wards and to look you know I think there's awareness training which I commend the MSK population for. I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? If you've got, if you want to know, if you want to upskill yourself on on awareness for what yeah. patients being a bit short of breath, what you can do, but actually what you as MSK physios can do within your skills, not learning new skills, that's not going to work. But this could hit, this could happen tomorrow. It could happen in two days' time. Yeah. We've got to just forget about thinking about skilling people up and sitting in a, in a gym, training sessions in gyms, you know, with no real people, with mannequins at the best of it. You know, what are people thinking they're going to put MP suctions in and things like that? Like that, that is just no, no, well, we need to stop it. People are thinking that and they're also then sometimes thinking not only can we do this incredible task of, of upskilling, but can we do it virtually? That's the other thing. You know, people are realising that, that that's not an in-service training that should happen in person right now. So let's, let's, let's get serious. And, mm-hmm. and understand why why people are feeling like that, but let's put that to bed and hopefully this does that. Now, it's, of course, this is Jack and Rachel's opinion on that matter pragmatically, and others mm-hmm. might disagree and we look forward to hearing from them. But in this, in this instance, that's a strong opinion of ours, and we think that that is a simpler answer because instead we can spend the rest of this podcast thinking about the practicality of what we can do. Now, there's an interface between those things, which is awareness, which we definitely want to cover and is a more reasonable question. So let's think about some of that then. As MSK orthopedic and what I'm calling less medical therapists, as we help with rehab, so things that we talked about on the last podcast, what can MSK therapists do? People loved that idea. We're going to be doing the, doing the rehab, seeing potentially people that are have been more real than we might have otherwise seen them, but fundamentally using functional, mm-hmm. functional MSK skill. So when we're doing that, what signs and symptoms should we be mindful of? You've mentioned some already. And then what are the sort of red lines for then seeking more specialist help when we start to notice those, like what might be signs of regression, etc. So let's think about that interface. Uh, that's a really great point. So we're going to have, we don't know at the moment, this, this disease took, took a hold at the end of January, right? Yeah. So in terms of post-ICU syndrome, in terms of, um, you know, pain down the line, neuropathic problems, especially in the, because we know it's affecting mainly the older, frailer population. So if they do survive this critical illness phase, there's potential for huge musculoskeletal problems down the line. Okay. So that's the first thing. We just don't know what the long-term effects of this. If we categorize this answer into two sections so COVID-19 patients if you are seeing them in that recovery phase um, then they are they've had they've had a bad um, um, ARDS what we'll call acute respiratory distress syndrome it's an acute lung injury to the point they need ventilation so the the lungs are going to take time to recover might be a bit short of breath they won't have the reserves. They might be, um, you know, um, difficulty even talking. So the activities that you're doing with them might be in the bed. It might be breathing control. It might be active cycle of breathing techniques. And you might think, Jesus, do they still do that? But we do. And it really works for some patients because it helps to get their breathing control so they can partake in more exercise and be more mobile. You might have people that you're being asked to see that are still in oxygen therapy. 
So we are anticipating like discharging more people with oxygen therapy to get them home if their lungs have been particularly damaged in that in that acute phase. Um, so you know it might be things like man- moving people and, and mobilizing people on oxygen therapy. When do you know when to stop? What is that threshold? Um, and again. For me, it's a common sense approach. If they, if they can say a couple of words and they can, you know, they look comfortable, keep walking them. If not, and they can't get any words out at all, you push them too far, sit them down. You know, this is the type of things we're talking about that we'll be expecting of our MSK workforce. Yeah, of course. No, that makes a makes a lot of sense. And as you as you say, common sense is all well and good, and it. it it's all about trying to have some composure in those situations as well, though, isn't it? So I'm not underestimating the fact that it's easy for me to sit here. I'm not meaning to sort of arrogantly scoff at the idea that that might be challenging. In, in real time, I would be uh, struggling to find the composure to sort of think about what, what, is, what is in front of me, even though it might be common sense. So that, that's a really, really good point. What, with regards to some, um, I think you're right in, in we, we, we sort of said about ABGs and stuff would probably be, be something that would be, be silly for us to, to, to be over considering, especially when these are then rehab patients that are otherwise starting to, we're trying to make them well or they're becoming more well. But OBS would be, OBS would be, would be smart, wouldn't it, for us to keep an eye on and, and certainly within Absolutely. Should be a skill set. So then we think about OBS and we think about um, worker breathing and we think about oxygen need. That's the sort of common sense we're thinking then, isn't it? What is the change in behaviour? Making sure we're thoroughly reassessing patients uh, in that. So mm-hmm. what, what clues might, might those sorts of things give us? So your, your subjective assessment is really important. So looking at the patient, talking to the patient, you know, you can even use things like visual analog scales if you want to say how, how breathless are you right now on a scale of 0 to 10? Um, how much pain are you in? Um, and then doing heart rate saturation, most of most people will have obviously they're just the, the plain sats probe you can put on the finger um and if and if people have you know if there's an indication doing things like blood pressure um so they, they would kind of be the things that we wouldn't expect people to do anything more than that and these are things like if our students are on placement our students would be doing that yeah. or um therapy technicians would be doing that these are things that um you know are totally totally within your realm to do um yeah. does that ask, answer your question absolutely does yeah um it, it started to when i've started thinking about this and starting preparing not just for this podcast but trying to field some of these questions and thinking you know it's that, part of me just stop it hovering over the button where i was about to forward it to rachel and thought no i am not overwhelming rachel with these questions let me i i asked her some of them on the podcast let me try and work it out is that i was reflecting on on some work i did within a hospice that was incredibly powerful work early in my career that's really laid the scenes for why i'm so passionate about functional rehab being such a heart such a bridge between all of our disciplines a bang a a drum that you know i've banged across Mm -hmm. it being Mm -hmm. like this bridge factor for respiratory and msk and stuff like that is because the functional rehab needs and and the, the value you can add for someone to be able to stand up so that their carer doesn't have to lift them up is just massive in 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 Mm. end of life care in a hospice so if people start thinking about that and start thinking about what it is that you can do to what not just from what you find on assessment but the value you can add to someone's life in that moment in time regardless of their specific goals even if it is something to be able to manage one sit to stand every couple of hours to assist their carer on changing that is incredible so then of course everything scales up from that in terms of getting people home getting people back active mm-hmm. so that's where msk physios need to start really thinking about what are you assessing 
and then just how much value you can add to some of the things that, that we want to talk about now in terms of what might be the realistic uh, needs, really, for uh, MSK physios to apply those skill sets in, in a mm. rehab environment. I definitely want to just add a little bit more to understanding how we might measure that because I think we, we can speak to common sense and that's great, but I do mm. want to just make sure we don't miss opportunities to potentially um, uh, make sure we... we measure it because it's it's one of them things that's easier to do it's easier to apply common sense if you've got some continuity of care um, mm-hmm. and, and msk physios are quite used to that sometimes we, we manage to retain our own caseload um and, and i know that that's done in inpatients too but especially when people move wards etc i know it's a bit it's a bit different depending on the governance structures around that that journey and so we don't want msk physios to be complacent on that so let's think about sort of what should be measured and documented appropriately so as People become functionally uh, less functionally limited, uh, less uh, unsafe, but more functionally limited. What respiratory factors should we be considering and measuring in the community and outpatient clinics as they develop? In the community and outpatients. So yeah, as people start to be functionally limited, once patients are safe but still functionally limited, what respiratory factors should we be maybe measuring? And are there any evidence-based outcome measures in, say, the community that if MSK uh, physios and, and the like or therapists generally are going to see them, is there anything there that's specific that we might not typically do that we should be doing in terms of outcome measures? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, so long-term community follow-up probably is in my bag. Most of my patients can't breathe. Um, but um, but we'll obviously have like pulmonary rehab type things like the six-minute walk test and probably like the St. George's respiratory questionnaire or something, which is a subjective um, um, test. So have we have we is there any functional outcome measures that would spring straight into my mind for this population of patients? Well, the first thing is we don't know what this population of patients are. Do it. We don't. It's we are dealing with the new pandemic crisis right now. So these patients are stable. They're going to have to get out of hospital. We want them out of hospital. We're making way for the next patients to come through. So we're probably going to be discharging people functionally less able. We're going to be discharging people probably fatigued. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the flu. I've never had the flu. Apparently, it's pretty bad. You feel bad for weeks if you've I've got had, comorbidities, well, etc. I've had man flu, which is obviously far worse. <laughs> so this population of people are still going to need recovery. You're absolutely right. So we're going to be discharging all these people that probably have a high readmission rate, that probably may drain your society, your resources... When you get back up and running, you're potentially going to have all of these people with joint problems and back problems and, um, you know, musculoskeletal weakness. So, you know, wh- where, how, how can we manage that? What, you know, where's the opportunity there? Well, and that's, that's where <laughs> I definitely wanted to talk to you about the, let's try to speculate and assume and try and get ahead of something or at least get people thinking in this direction because me and you have been talking about this off air we're thinking in this direction even if we're wrong it's still a worthwhile thought experiment isn't it if elective orthopedics um is being cancelled if your routine OA knees or your grumbly sports conditions that someone's been meaning to get checked out for six months and eventually get round to doing it. If they're not coming into clinic for a period of time, then 
and MSK therapists are wanting to do what they want to do and they're listening to what we're advising that they, they lean into their skill set rather than do this sort of abstract upskilling into acute medical skills, then there is a surely a sensible experiment that should be done, a pilot of a sort that then deploys those specialist MSK therapists into functional rehabilitation care in the community, which is not group-based, especially in this moment in time, but is essentially just applied functional scaling of that person's individual needs wherever they, in whichever environment is relevant to them, be that, be that home or elsewhere. Now, if ever there was a time, I mean, I think me and you would be in favour of that. As a, as a, that. Why are those mm-hmm. pilots not being done, right? But if we can't take this opportunity to demonstrate the value of that as a means of then showing the the the, the bridge that I was talking about earlier between our disciplines, that's got. This has got to be the moment, hasn't it? Oh, literally, like my juices are flowing right now, Jack. Like that is so exciting. So can you imagine, right, we are achieving things in the NHS in the space of days that we've been trying to achieve for years, right, decades. Can you imagine if as a result, let's try and think of some positives, as a result of this, as a result of culling all non-essential MSK services, orthopedic surgeries, which is which is bad, you know, there's people that need operations and things. But if we have this highly skilled musculoskeletal professional um, kind of people that are just at our disposal and if you mobilize them into the community so this might be to you know um, to um, if we've took say resource out of rehabilitation beds etc you mobilize them into their facilities or you mobilize them into the community that is going to have a massive impact on these people so we're going to be discharging people less functionally able, like I said, who maybe are frail, who maybe have these musculoskeletal comorbidities. And if you have a workforce that's ready to go to meet the needs there, not in six-week waiting list, not in 12-week waiting list, at that moment in time to prevent further dis- decline and functional decline, that is just incredible. Can you imagine the impact for our society? And getting people back to work, when people can go back to work, the bigger healthcare economy around that. Well, and that's the, that's the, that's the bridge to the economics is, of, of this, is that the, the recovery effort that, w- that would occur by facilitating sensible occupational health principles of, of, of graded return and having specialists that can facilitate that and, and a, a process of consultation that lends itself so well to virtual. You know, that, that, that there's almost a coaching aspect on mm-hmm. practical levels, the liaison to workforce managers across various different sectors, the uh, ability of, of, of therapists under new fit note schemes and stuff like that, that mm-hmm. we are, that, that, mm-hmm. that are still creaking into gear, right? So this is the opportunity to grab that, that chance. Now, when it comes to workforce stuff, this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about. I'm fielding calls this week already, but also I've got a couple tomorrow, so I don't know exactly how they're going to go, but really proactive groups of, of osteopaths and charities of various different um, flavors in MSK and beyond of, of multi different multidisciplinary therapies, sports rehabilitators, sports therapists um, that are in a situation where they want to offer help and are, I think they don't have that same, some of the, the MSK physios sort of have this sort of seeming, they're the ones that are thinking they need to go and dust off their stethoscope. Mm-hmm. 
the osteopaths mm-hmm. and stuff that and the sports rehabbers they they're not they haven't got those instincts because they didn't necessarily um, train into that skill set. So instead, they are already sort of thinking about those functional rehab stuff that we're talking about. And, but but mm-hmm. there's also a barrier to entry to some extent within the NHS. Right? They have difficulties mm-hmm. being employed beyond band four sometimes. Slightly different with osteo, but still, they end up mm-hmm. um, often working in, in and around different roles to what MSK physios do. So that workforce is broad and it's multidisciplinary. And, the, and the, there's a really rich skill set that the NHS underutilizes anyway. Now, admittedly, I'm speaking into an MSK our policy here where we've made and made a case for broad a broadening of that workforce at least on a pilot for, for for not caring the flavor of the certificate that's on your wall now again with with sensible leadership comes competence-based recruitment into those sorts of roles surely we, we we use this as an opportunity to demonstrate that value within populations that just have rehab needs that are quite generic where you need to scale their function from where they are to where they want to get to and it's not necessarily anything that's especially pathology specific there isn't as much of a diagnostic need it's kind of that frailty uh, based approach but also recognizing that we've got a, a weak and vulnerable work um, they're not necessarily even frail or pre-frail and, and they're not even age uh, risk factors there it's just that they've been run down by an illness mm-hmm. and we need to get mm-hmm. them out of the system quicker into mm-hmm. the community quicker those are the sorts of patient people therapists that we need in front of them right so do you think that we're both excited by it but do you think it's a pipe <laughs> clearly dream, right yeah but do, do you think it's a pipe dream is that is, or do you think that this oh. is that the, 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 there is there is going to be the p- political will to make that happen so instead of this MSK amazing workforce trying to create their respiratory pocket notebooks. If the res- if the MSK workforce was to sit down and come up within their organisations or within their populations, so working across the strategic networks or wherever they're working, you're going to have MSK who are already in the community and GP surgeries. Because that's another thing, Jack. The GP's surgeries are shutting, aren't they? I mean, I've heard that surgeries are closing. Um, I don't know if it's happening on mass scale. I haven't had the time to look into it. But who's going to be treating all these people that come in with the MSK-type problems? So if we have a referral system from the hospital, so the discharge referral system, into this new collaborative community physiotherapy-led initiative, the COVID initiative, the COVID rehab initiative, I don't know what, what you can coin it as. And then they take a lead on that and they say, look, we're going to create these discharge pathways. We're going to create it in my locality, how it might work. We're going to see these people in the home environment. And don't get me wrong, it's, you can't just put a physio in someone's house and it's going to happen. There's going to be infection protection control issues. We don't know how long these patients have a viral load for. We don't know how long their infective period is. We, we're, we're, you know, in terms of discharge planning for them. Um, so there's going to be all them types of little things to, to work out. But in terms of the government planning, this is, we're not talking weeks, aren't we? We're, not, we're talking months. So the post-viral recovery phase is weeks and months. So we'll have a bit of time to get this right here. So is this, uh, my, my take or my question back to you guys is I'm doing my bit. I'm mobilizing my staff. I'm creating a specialist workforce to help my intensive care units and my respiratory wards. With that kind of prod, can you guys step up? 
and create these reform you know we've got such good initiatives right to rehab rehab matters like there's really good the csp provided a little platform for you here haven't they to think actually there is a there is a policy around this absolutely no this this is it's primed um primed for use um absolutely i one of the things that tickles me a little bit about that is we hopefully i mean this won't do all of that work so unfortunately you will still get pestered but you should surely, if anyone listens to these arguments and doesn't, you know, if someone counters them with better arguments, then fine. But if, if people are going to universally agree with us because we've really done the thinking on this, let's hope that they do. That they should be, people should be leaving you alone with those questions and starting to then think that let's get organized, let's think strategically, let's take some leadership both as a profession and as organizations to try to then work out how to unify that what are the parameters the competency parameters around what an msk workforce can do how do we make sure that we just park the petty squabbles the 20 percent we disagree on how much we lay our hands how much manual therapy matters how much you know, exactly how much we should load a tendon right let's park those things that are fun academic things that we've we've squabbled on before in in peacetime and start to think about what is what unifies us and and start leaving you and your specialist colleagues alone a little bit so how can we bring that together i would definitely you know it's exactly the conversations i've been having um all week and and, and some of last last week um it's the conversations that i, I want to try and make sure that this platform and, and, and all of what we do um with physio matters but of course now with the, the sort of activist arm of it which is now into mskr of course we can help with that uh, but but only you know we, we're just floating policy essentially we want to work with this CSP, you know, feed into that right to rehab, help people comprehend their role within it, um, make sure there's no barriers to entry for those sensible evidence-informed osteopaths and sports rehabbers and stuff that want to get involved in that conversation. Let's Surely this is the opportunity to, to, to make, make that happen and, and make sure that there's no silly protectionism that goes on on professional boundaries, um, which makes you sensibly less relevant to this conversation do you know what i mean it's like you can get on with doing what you do and, and stop being pestered uh, by the likes of us so that's that's probably the, the the smart move and definitely something that we need to see decent leadership emerge uh from where it's where is appropriate um and where people are well placed and and if people want to be nerdy about it the macroeconomic situation as we see it and the amount of public sector jobs, the you know modified socialist economy that we're probably going to need to have, which is sort of, sort of what happened in a post-war period, is going to be that, that, that surely those are the sorts of public sector jobs that would be wise to employ healthcare professionals into. And, and, and then if that proves concept, then surely the, the, when the dust settles on this in, in 12 to 18 months, uh, probably at the shortest, then surely that's a that's a demonstrable blurring of the lines between professional boundaries, and then we suddenly just care about individual and group competence, don't we? Absolutely, and I think I just need to probably go back a step and reiterate because I can I can sense some people maybe getting a bit twitchy about this, like um, you know therapy managers and things saying, "Oh God, you know we're we're scaling up our workforce and we're using these MSK physios to do thing everything that she said not to do." You're going to have variants within your MSK departments, aren't you? You're going to have band fives. You're going to have your sixes with still some skills. We're talking. I want to use those 
physios in my wards. I want to use them, okay? So I'm not saying I don't want to not use um, yeah, skilled with the right skills. This is a real opportunity. So you know we mentioned, I can't remember exactly the comment I meant about this clinical specialist at ESPs. I've probably got the least skills when it comes to transferable skills on, uh, into acute. But, I mean, what an opportunity for these guys. I mean, I know some of them, you know, your friends and things, and they, are, you know, they're really savvy people when it comes to media, when it comes to just getting on and do it. Let's just do it. Well, now it's an opportunity for these people to put their money where their mouth is, isn't it? Because this is a bloody good idea. So how can we mobilise this and how can we use our networks and our links to make this happen? Because if someone who doesn't want these patients coming back in the hospital, we don't want them having falls in the community. We don't want them picking up secondary infections or sitting in their house. I mean, these patients are probably going to have like some kind of post-traumatic distress. Can you imagine waking up on an intensive care unit and being told you've got COVID-19 with people in hoods and masks and then you're feeling so lousy, not being able to see a family and friends. So therapists, we all, we're all going to this profession for the same reason, don't we? Especially in the UK. And we are still going to have those underlying skills as well, caring, compassionate, understanding in that recovery phase. So it's not, I think sometimes we focus on the therapeutic hands-on stuff, don't we? What impact can we have? But these are people, it could be your spouse, it could be your parent, your brother, your uncle, it could be anyone you know. So you would want that. You would want that person, wouldn't you, in that recovery phase? Well, and, we'd, and, we'd, and we definitely need to just make sure that we clarify that point as to what levels of... Because me and you are getting enthused by the policy, but the reason we're enthused by it is because the social impact of getting that right is so huge because we need people that are highly skilled in, in, in empathy-based communication are going to be the ones that can help us recover this as a society in a world where people are going to be waking up as you described it and recovering in a world where it's not they're not allowed to see their dying relatives or not supposed to mm-hmm. see their dying relatives in Italy mm-hmm. they they're, they're banning funerals right yeah so we're in a situation where the world as we know it and the processes of of, of grief the the way that we would care for our sick relatives the people in their 60s that would normally be looking after their parents who are in their 80s and 90s are then being told to stay away from even even though the likelihood is based on statistics that there's a chance of them not not surviving yet they've got to self-isolate the the psychological distress that we're going to need to to be to be trying to help people through as well as what we're all going to be going through as as people as well as therapists this is why, whilst the, the, the giddiness that we've just had a, a 10 minutes on between us in terms of policy is purely because of our knowledge of the impact done well um, that this could have at a time where that's the, they're the specialists we need, right? The, the, the people that can, that, can, that can really understand empathetic communication, that can really uh, understand the... The, the, the pettiness of, of the intricacies of where we academically might squabble before and to realise the unification that can happen around the real priorities, that we, 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 the, the massive social triage that we're going to do over what is of high value and what is of moderate value. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's what's uh, a massive importance. So if you've not realised already, me and, me and Rachel and, and many others, of course, just want MSK leaders or, or people that are, are otherwise 
coherent on strategy to start thinking in that direction rather than thinking about the stuff that we covered at the start of the podcast. Because if your skill set is in man management, if your skill set is in um, in networking and, and, and bringing together groups, if you've if you have, have tried to build bridges before that have never come together, maybe this is the chance to try that again, um, to pull resources and pull names, to dust off the black books and try to realize that they're putting people together that might have, communication might have broken down before. It's a different landscape and the rewards for getting that right this time are enormous. And so let's do that. Obviously, there's people like uh, people like us that are just in that sort of like new media landscape that, of course, can hopefully try to, you know, this is exactly what we're doing to try and bring that together. But uh, above all else, you know, just just that's sometimes it takes for some swallowing of pride to go on. Uh, self-interest needs to certainly evaporate uh, and, and realize this this sort of um, collective effort that we all need to to employ. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So I think this kind of has gone back to the original point, wasn't it? Is MSK Physios, what is your unique contribution here? What is it? I'm fortunate in some ways because I have a skill set that is needed. My profession, it's it's obvious what we're going to do. It's obvious where our upskill needs to be and how we're deployed. We've got that middle bit we talked about, maybe the rotational staff, the people who have acute skills that can do all of the usual NHS activities still have to happen. Okay, we're still, like we said, we're still going to have that population of people. It's not just about these post-viral patients. Um, but these are a new population, what we don't know what to do with, but we've got to get it right because the NHS won't cope if we don't because we are already overwhelmed with our existing clients. So why, this is why, for me, this is so exciting, and I hadn't even thought about it till we were having the conversation, like, is this an is this your unique opportunity and your strategic leaders in MSK, the people in the leadership posts, the people like yourself who are channeling, you know, good practice, what is rational? It's not about what is sexy. It's not about what um, attracts the most attention. It's about what does a population of people need in our healthcare. And that is a massive contribution to society. And that makes me feel you know, so overwhelmed with happiness that you guys are even thinking about that. The fact that you just want to know about respiratory stuff is absolutely commendable. Like, I, you know, I love you even more. But is it necessary? Well, thank you so much. But I really don't think it is. But mm. I think this is. Well, I think said, everything we just talked about is. We get the instinct, don't we? Like, we understand uh-huh. why there's that instinct. But we just think it might be misplaced. And if you channel that energy, I mean... If you think about the ambition that, that, that therapists and groups of therapists that are approaching you and you and I about that stuff are, that's a mountain to climb that they're saying we're willing to climb it, help us climb it. Mm-hmm. I'm reassured that we're saying instead of right, here's the, here's the mountaineering equipment to climb that mountain. Here I am exhausting this metaphor. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're saying, no, you're actually, you've actually got a lot more you can do here on base camp. Yeah. You actually, you know, there's lots more you can do here. And, and that is a, hopefully a reassuring message that they can double down on some of these things and think strategically about what that's going to look at, not mm-hmm. just now, but down the line. Yeah. I want to just give a couple of examples here into my niche area with regards to within, within MSK, particularly when we're going to be doing virtual consults. So I want to just say to, to, to my f- colleagues in MSK, think about, the importance of getting a quality clinician in front of someone who has just sprained their ankle that would normally wonder whether or not to have an x-ray that then consults you virtually through the NHS or privately 
and the difference between you and Joe Bloggs Cowboy down the road, and you're going to go through trying to do a virtual version of an Otto or Ankle rules. You're going to be trying to be sensible and evidence-based about whether or not it's what the likelihood ratios are of that person having had a fracture and how that might be managed and understanding that pathway. When Cowboy down the road is trying to do a virtual consultation, they would normally try and rub it better, put some acupuncture needles in and, and, and a magic machine, right? They're the ones that might be doing that and they might say, better be safe than sorry, you want an x-ray for that, and send that person needlessly into a healthcare system that's stretched. Whereas you, as a quality clinician, are being thoughtful about it. We need to get you in front of people, ideally virtually, I would say, in this instance. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there's, there's absolutely no reason why we're going to have a decreased rate of cordial equinus syndrome suddenly in the low back pain population, and we know those percentages. We've exhausted that on this podcast recently. So we need you, as a quality clinician, to be triaging that and helping someone to... Who's, we already have complacency rates within Corda Equina where people don't want to go to A&E when they should be doing. So imagine just how much that's going to be accentuated by people not wanting to stress the system. Uh, Joe Bloggs in the population, not a therapist Joe Bloggs, I've got too many Joe Bloggs in this example now, haven't I? But a patient in the population that's got back, a, a back issue that, that we know to be Corda Equina positive on, on the questioning is going to be in a situation where they, we already know they don't take themselves to A&E with enough urgency for no fault of theirs, they're going to be even more reluctant to do so. So they might consult you virtually. And they, we, want you to, we want them to see the Physio Matters podcast listeners, not <laughs> the masseuse I've just described, who, who pretends to be a physio, right? So yeah. these are the sorts of things that even without the, 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 the more grandiose examples of policy escalation that we've talked about with regards to rehabbing mm-hmm. work, workforce, mm-hmm. but even just on a basic consultation level, MSK physio, step up. And also, I hope, don't be shy and don't succumb to what I call professional correctness, which is where you have a go at me for inferring that that cowboy exists, right? I get a lot of trouble for suggesting that there is an unscrupulous physio around the corner. Mm-hmm. You know, get mm-hmm. over yourselves. This is not a time for purity tests. Mm-hmm. And dust yourself down and be the best clinician you can be and inspire good clinicians to do good consults because everything else is happening behind the scenes and we need to be there for when the system grinds back into gear. So those are examples that I want my MSK colleagues to step up to. And if we've made the argument where you can stop thinking about where your stethoscope is and start mobilizing <laughs> your thoughts instead in this direction. Stop bothering Rachel and her colleagues in, 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 that, in that way and instead start thinking about that. I'm excited to see if the people that love to talk about hashtag leadership and start to pat each other on the back about how well they've done for, for um, all that sort of gubbins and garbage that sometimes happens where it just becomes a sycophantic backpatting exercise. Let's see if some actual leaders emerge rather than get appointed. Um, I'm really excited to see if that happens, um, and I hope it does. I hope this inspires that and people dust themselves down. Uh, but, but realistically, the opportunity is here, and the rewards are enormous, not just for the profession but for society at large, because compared to most people that are feeling powerless in various different industries that, of course, have got incredible social value, hospitality industries, etc., they're feeling powerless we needn't feel as, as as useless as we feel right now let's step up and make ourselves count and make a difference so you know with what you're doing if you can just trailblaze the, the leadership that you're showing the production of resources the pragmatic translation of resources that you're doing if people can do even half a job of what you're doing then we'll be in a better place so uh, again you know i just i know i'm ranting now aren't i but but th- <laughs> thank you so much for, for for your place in this and i hope we can 
appropriately refine your place in this so that you can continue to be efficient rather than being having your having your time wasted by well-meaning but misled mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and misguided people let's say and hopefully reassure some service managers that mm. they don't need to give themselves quite the headaches that they have been over the last couple of weeks that is such a great point to start wrapping up on so if you're watching this as the physio manager or the HP lead, um, I'm, I'm probably pissed off a lot of people in my profession on this podcast right now. They're like, what the hell is she doing? This is what, what we normally do. We normally <laughs> want to get as many people as we can on awards. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if I pissed you off, but it's that's just this is what I think. So if you're the physio manager, if you're the HP leader and you've watched this, and you go to your MSK teams and say, you know what it is? I listened to that Rachel Moses on that podcast and we're not going to put you on the wards and you don't have to get your stethoscope out. I don't think there'll be one person that thinks, oh, God, I really wanted to do that. If they go to them and say, let's think about what we can do, bridging our services, helping with the rehabilitation, everything you've just said there, Jack, I won't repeat it. Can you imagine that's going to inspire people? That's going to be motivate people. People are going to want to support the healthcare. So I think that's a big take-home message, and that's what you were trying to do from the very beginning. If I've got it right. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah, but and then that's why I'm cautious and why I'm inviting people to disagree with us because I always worry that this is it might look like opportunism that this is a this is a thought process a thought experiment that we've been doing and floating for a while so i don't want to look like an opportunity to just say oh well look we're just shoehorning in what we think is our favorite flavor of policy i'm only i mean it's it is an opportunity that i feel is knocking but it's only because i really genuinely feel that this has only strengthened those arguments now if there's a counter argument i'm missing i'm really interested to hear it Uh, i look forward to hearing from some of yours and my colleagues that disagree with that practical aspect and the fact that they think that the msk workforce actually it's it's not as big a step as we're suggesting for them to to uh start to understand uh, (laughs) non-invasive non-invasive i can't even say it never mind use it non-invasive ventilation if they think that 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 we're being uh, we're being too flippant on that then please we want to hear from you because we want to understand the strength of your argument we clearly disagree with it it's not through lack of thinking about it um and 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 you can you can look back on our channels and find an interview uh, at uh, at Physio UK like three years ago where me and Rachel talked about this very stuff, right? So we've been pretty consistent and we've and we've not had an argument to change his mind on this, but we'll, we'll probably link to that. That'd be quite amusing, actually. <laughs> but if uh, if you disagree, then please do. Uh, we are not being cavalier on this we've given it a lot of thought over many years and we think it's very applicable now and and it's very important that we speak our mind on it even though we admit and we understand it's controversial but we are not doing this to scaremonger we're also not doing it to be sensational uh, sensationalists that's not even a word is it another edit is is it i think so (laughs) but we're we're not sensationalizing this for the sake of it um, but we just we just think it's important. We're very passionate about it. We see an opportunity knocking, but we also see that if we get it if we get it right, I don't think it's dramatic to say that we could really help the war effort on this. And <laughs> getting it wrong, we could at least be you know, net neutral would be a good thing. We could actually confuse the ma- confuse matters if we did it wrong. So let's let's uh, let's hope that, that that people dust themselves down and, and get their uh, channel their attention, channel their well well meaning attention in the right way because that's one thing that's been consistent is that people are really caring about this stuff and that even though we think there might be sometimes misplaced in that 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 application 
that's still a good place, you know. We'd rather people doing that than just being sort of passive or apathetic. We've not seen any of that, have we? We've seen passion. Let's place that passion sensibly, and, and we could we could do work wonders. I doubt this is the last time me and you speak about this. Um, <laughs> certainly off air, uh, but on the air, I think we've hopefully tied a bow in it and helped that you get mm-hmm. on with get on with the, the important work you're doing. Is there anything else you want to add uh, as we wrap up? And where can people find you? Where can in this office <laughs> <laughs> or on the wards? Um, so no, um, obviously you, um, I'm more than happy if people have me email details. I'm on Twitter. That's my main social media channel. Um, and yeah, just please take everything on board. Thank you so much. As a profession, how amazing are us? We're coming together in a time of crisis to really want to have a contribution to the crisis and to healthcare. So thanks so much, Jack. Thanks to you for doing this. I mean, God, you've, you've had a really huge response all of it's been positive me dms have been binging away um so yeah thanks so much and honestly if you guys want any help it's strategically trying to work out what the next step is and more than happy to do that but i'm sure you've got enough leaders within your profession to do that no well we're, yeah, here's, here's hoping as we say that 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 this that, that leaders do step up i mean we're we're, we're just hopefully providing a, a megaphone you know the opportunity is not for us to just say look you know all the stuff we've been doing, as I say, squabbling over exactly how to load a tendon and uh, and and whether how how much you should apply manual therapy. The mm-hmm. fact that we've just built a channel that can help us amplify messages like this that are far more important than those things mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is is just a great uh, great privilege for me to be able to do. And uh, thank you, uh, thanks to my team working behind the scenes to coordinate this podcast. Huge thanks to the sponsor of this podcast as well, the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, the the charity at that hospital that's wanted to try and amplify this message and helped us to bring this podcast forward in the schedule for you finding the time for us another uh, for another evening in the same week because of the public response to to what we found in in the tens of thousands it's it's exciting and it's really important and i don't want you to underestimate as you continue to do your important voice in this um, and, and as the response has shown i hope that's making you realize just how valuable that is and your bravery to go against the grain sometimes to at least speak your mind is is really fantastic so thank you so much for that personally and that was our first emergency COVID-19 session thank you so much to Rachel Moses for that find her at Rachel Moses on Twitter where she's very active at the moment helping with all these questions as I mentioned in the intro the most important thing you to do right now if you're interested in what we've, we've been discussing you want further information about how you can help and at least not be a hindrance then please go to mskreform.org.uk forward slash rehab recruits uh, we put this out uh, very very shortly before this podcast was out we're already getting hundreds of people volunteering into what we think will end up being a mailing list that we'll be able to hand over to the department of health and then at chess england wales scotland northern ireland and uh, we're really excited to be able to try and bring that together and, and channel this effort into community rehabilitation and uh, really utilise people's specialty as best possible. So do tune in for future emergency sessions as well as other work that we've got going on. This is the time to follow us on social media at TPM Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Find us the, at the Physio Matters Podcast on Facebook, YouTube and beyond. So please do follow all of my team and uh, thank you so much 
for all of their hard work that they're doing at the moment to really keep the messages flowing to you guys and hopefully we're able to, to stand up and, and be a voice that's helpful and a megaphone for good ideas in this important time. So thank you very much. Take care and do look after yourselves. So you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing physio matters because physio matters. <laughs> Brilliant. Love it. Cheese galore. <laughs> That's full of fucking cheese. <laughs> <laughs> right, that'll do. It's a wrap. <laughs>